welcome everyone to the Institute for Government. My name is Hannah White. I'm Deputy Director here, and I'm delighted that you can all join us here for this event on the next Commons Speaker. Um, I have to say that we invited all the candidates who declared uh, for speaker. Some of them, unfortunately, had unavoidable fire commitments and gave their apologies, but we're really delighted that we have six of the candidates here and the opportunity to talk to them about their vision for the role of speaker and the House of Commons. Just a few housekeeping points. Uh, the event's on the record. It's being live streamed and we've also got a couple of press cameras. Um, if you would like to tweet, the hashtag is IFGSpeaker. Um, and if there is a fire that there's no uh, uh, practice planned, just uh, down the main staircase that you came in. So uh, just to introduce uh, the, the panel, although you uh, they need no introduction. Sorry, am I too far away from the... Um, in alphabetical order, uh, we have Sir Henry Bellingham, Conservative MP for Northwest Norfolk since 2001, Chris Bryant, Labour MP for the Rhondda since 2001, Harriet Harman, Labour MP for Camberwell and Peckham since 1982, Meg Hillier, Labour MP for Hackney South and Shoreditch since 2005, Dame Eleanor Lang, Conservative MP for Epping Forest since 1997, and Shailesh Vara, Conservative MP for Northwest Cambridgeshire since 2005. Now, this is not intended to be a hustings as such, but we thought it would be sensible to allow the candidates to kick off with a strict two minutes to tell us about their top two priorities uh, in the role and how they plan to address the challenges facing Parliament. And then the plan is that I'll ask a single question, being very abstemious in my role as chair, and then we'll go to the audience for chairs. I've asked the candidates to please be very brief to demonstrate not only the value of what they have to say, but the, their ability to express it succinctly, uh, which might be considered a, a, a good thing for the speaker, although make no comment on that. Um, and yes, we'll, we'll, we'll try and uh, handle those questions and get to as many as possible uh, before two o'clock. So can I, in a radical break from, uh, from normal procedure, we'll go in reverse alphabetical order, just to mix things up a bit. Um, and we'll start with Charlie Schwara, this is two minutes. Uh, well, thank you very much, Hannah, and a very good afternoon to all of you. And I'm delighted that for the first time in my life, with a surname beginning with V, I'm first rather than last. <laughs> um, could I also compliment the Institute on all the fantastic work that you do? In terms of priorities, I think the main thing is to restore trust and confidence in uh, the role of the Speaker and indeed in Parliament. Uh, if truth be told, uh, many of us take the view that uh, uh, trust and confidence has been diminished and that we do have a biased and, and a speaker who is not impartial. Uh, Clark's advice is ignored, conventions are used when it's suitable, and conventions are ignored when it's suitable for a particular agenda. Uh, and basically we have rulemaking on the hoof, and that cannot continue. Uh, what I think is important is that we have clarity in terms of the uh, procedures of the House, and that means that uh, we don't have the confusion and the uh, accusations and charges that we've had in recent times. To be absolutely clear, I'm not suggesting writing the Constitution. This is simply procedural. It is simply to sort out what the Speaker can and cannot do in certain instances. Uh, it's not about constitutional, uh, a written Constitution. Uh, the other thing is that it's important we have uh, a gold standard in terms of how the House uh, treats its staff. Uh, therefore, without delay, we should be implementing all the recommendations, particularly that third recommendation, which is outstanding 
of Dame Laura Cox's report. Uh, we must set the standard and there must be zero tolerance for bullying, for harassment, including sexual harassment. I think it's also important that the tone of debate and the tone from the Speaker's chair is a lot different to what it has been at present. Uh, put bluntly, the current Speaker is uh, a verbal playground bully in that the way, in the way that he demeans uh, colleagues, uh, insults them, uh, and uh, seeks to score points uh, because he always has the final word. That cannot continue, and I think it's important that we remember that in the recent debate, and I am winding up now, we have had uh, the recent debate in terms of the behavior of all MPs in the House of Commons. Uh, and I think that if the Speaker himself doesn't set an example of courtesy and politeness, uh, then he lacks all authority in terms of lecturing to other MPs as to what she or he uh, should be saying and how they say it. Thank you very much indeed. David Oh, Thank you very much. I'm so glad that we're having this meeting today because one thing that's annoyed me for many years now is the trivialization of the role of speaker and the concentration on uh, what the speaker actually does at, at points of high drama in the chamber. And most people, but not anyone in this audience, but most people perceive that tip of the iceberg to be what the speaker is about and what the speaker does. And you all know that that's not the case. There's an enormous iceberg under that of power, responsibility, and duty uh, that the speaker exerts. Um, so I'm so glad that we're having a serious discussion today about that. Uh, I agree, we, we all agree that restoring confidence and faith in our democracy is the number one priority. Uh, there are obvious ways in which I would want to do that, setting an example of dignity and respectful behavior in the chamber, being strictly impartial, applying the rules uh, with, with uh, consistency, uh, protecting the rights of backbenchers and minority parties, um, Exerting, as I hope I've done as Deputy Speaker, exerting authority with kindness. You don't need to be rude in order to, be, uh, to exert discipline. Um, changing the hierarchy and the culture of Parliament. It's appalling that the work of the Cox uh, Commission has not been implemented. We need, we need a proper rules-based way of dealing with bullying and bad behavior. And the Speaker needs to stand up for the reputation of members of parliament and of parliament itself. But I would actually go further than that. And very importantly, I think it's time we had a comprehensive total review of the governance of the House of Commons. Some of you may know what the commission does, how people get appointed to it, uh, who serves on it and what they do. Some of you might, but you're in a tiny minority. Most people don't, and I bet you anything, 95% of members of parliament don't. We don't know how the House is held to account, and there is no way of holding the Speaker to account. So the first thing I think we now need to do with this new opportunity of a new Speaker is to have this review of governance, including looking at the duties, responsibilities, and indeed the tenure of office of the Speaker. Well, I, as um, Dame Eleanor says, we all agree there is a crisis of confidence in our democracy and the Speaker has a crucial role in setting the tone of debate and restoring faith in our democracy and transparency. Too often we're very bad at explaining what we're doing to the public and I 
served on the Speaker's Digital Democracy Commission, and there's much more work that needs to be done to make sure the public have access to what we do in so many ways. And that crisis of confidence, though, is partly to do with some of the language we've heard in the Chamber. Politicians have an absolute responsibility for setting the tone, and the Speaker has a pivotal role in that. But more than that, we have, of course, the Laura Cox, Dame Laura Cox uh, review. That has not been fully implemented, but we all agree, I think, that we need to see that done. But that's not enough. Having an independent appeal process for members of staff of the House, uh, or indeed for MP staff, is too late in the day. And if you've read the Gemma White report, you will see some horror stories there about what talented, bright, interested people come into Parliament wanting to do, and sometimes the reality of their experience. People have come to see me laying out some of the experiences that they have had, which are just unacceptable. When Michael Martin was Speaker, we had the expenses crisis, and that's part of the reason the current Speaker was elected. If we don't grapple with this now, this will cause another crisis in our Parliament. And I've got a very clear plan about how we need to support MPs in having proper trained support in their offices, proper support from day one, so that their staff are properly treated and are good advocates for our parliamentary democracy. If we don't grapple this now, it will just begin to be a problem. And while all of the issues in the chamber are very important, and we could talk about that, and I'm sure we'll get questions about that, if we don't tackle the issue of bullying, harassment, and generally poor practice in too many MPs' offices, we will never change the culture in Parliament for all the staff working there. Thank you. Harry. Thanks very much indeed. And thank you to the Institute for Government for organising this and bringing you all here. And I think it shows the unprecedented level of interest there is in this speaker election. And thank you to Hannah for being on the television so frequently trying to explain the inexplicable to a baffled public. But that really sets the context in which the new speaker will take over. And a speakership election is always the moment to look at the context and what the challenge is for the new speaker. Firstly, relations between public and parliament have never been at a lower ebb. And I think that the public view of Parliament borders on dismay verging onto contempt. And that is a lot to do with how we are seen to behave in the chamber. I think the Speaker must ensure, with the support of the majority of MPs, that the minority do not disrupt, do not shout down, do not do finger jabbing, answer questions and actually conduct parliamentary democracy in a way which can make people feel proud of their parliament. I also think that relations between the House staff um, and members and the different hierarchies in the House uh, need to be addressed. We absolutely need to implement the Dame Laura Cox report. She herself said, I can't find out who is responsible for implementing my recommendations, although Parliament's agreed them, what's their timeline, or even what have already been implemented. That's not right. We also need to make sure that we have modern employment practices like carers and bereavement leave. It's not fair that a member of staff of an MP, if a relative dies the night before, has to turn up for work the next day unless they get the permission of their boss. So I think there's a lot to be done, including putting staff representatives on the House of Commons Commission. And then, of course, oh, I didn't get to the relationship between the government and um, Parliament, but we can deal with that in questions. Worry, I've got a question on that. Which is, Parliament must rule. 
I'm standing because I love Parliament. I believe in parliamentary democracy. I think parliamentary democracy is in a bit of trouble at the moment. Uh, and I want to do things properly. Uh, I'm a bit of a geek. I'm the kind of person who knows the rule book inside out. I've got a copy of the standing orders by my bedside. Um, and I've, re I've written a two-volume history of Parliament, which is not available in any good bookshops. Um, uh, but and So I have two priorities, really. The first is... Um, is about good order uh, in the chamber. Of course, that's a key element of, of why um, you know, Peter de la Mer was elected as the first speaker so many years ago. Um, and uh, that's, I do want to get rid of the clapping, um, not least as somebody pointed out to me last night, um, that if you're watching on television and the clapping suddenly happens, um, the sound for people who have um, hearing aids in is completely distorted. Uh, so uh, there are lots of reasons, I think, why we should not um, have clapping in the chamber, but I want to stop that. I want to stop the um, le long lectures from the chair, points of order that go on for an hour and a half, and um, addresses to the gallery and all of that kind of stuff. I want to have a speaker's list so that MPs can know when they're going to be called, broadly speaking. I don't think we should have to... We're grown-ups. We shouldn't have to go up to the speaker's chair and ask whether we can go to the toilet or go for a cup of tea. Um, they can do it in the House of Lords. I don't see why we can't do that in the Commons. And I want to stitch back the rule because everybody's been breaking the rule, rules of late. Uh, government, opposition, um, speaker, everybody. Um, I defy anybody to explain clearly standing order 24, 24A and 24B. Um, they, are, they, they are written so badly that you could drive a coach and horses through them is the honest truth. Um, the second bit for me is the palace as a place of work. It is a disgrace that we write lots of legislation about disabled access and the chamber itself has not got proper disabled access. Um, people who have physical disabilities, mobility issues, um, sort of manage to steer around it. But, I mean, it, it is pathetic. And, and the lighting in the chamber makes it many diff very difficult for people with um, poor eyesight to be able to read the documents in front of them. So there's a lot that we can do to change that. Um, we need a proper human resources function in Parliament. Uh, most MPs would really welcome that because they come to Parliament, never, many, many cases, never having employed anybody before in their life. Uh, and actually, that's the best route to making sure that we have good HR practices um, uh, 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 across the place. Um, we need to improve the terms and conditions of all the staff in Parliament. I still think it's shocking that if uh, the vast majority of staff in Parliament who are black and ethnic minority uh, will be working in the kitchens or in the cleaning department and not in the clerks department. We really need to change that. And the final thing is... Um, I complained for many, many years, and we've still not got it right, about the security available to members of Parliament in their own home. It was a historic and privilege of Parliament that we should be able to do our job without, without fear or favour and without intimidation. And the truth is now many MPs, not just women, but it is primarily women and, and um, MPs from a BAME background, um, genuinely feel intimidated. And I've spoken to four MPs in the last week who are not going to stand again at the next election because of the threats to their life. Thanks. That is not a democracy that's functioning. Thank you. Sir Henry. Thank you very much, and thank uh, again to the Institute for hosting this. Uh, I agree with everything that's been said so far, actually. I think that we, there's a huge amount of consensus. Uh, I personally think that John Burko has been a brilliant speaker for backbenchers. I think some of his reforms have been uh, really innovative, and I think that the, the, the power, the opportunities of backbenchers have been hugely, hugely extended. Uh, and so I don't go the whole way that Charlotte has gone, but I, I really feel strongly that the, the speaker must be like any good umpire or referee. He should never be the story. And he shouldn't grandstand, he shouldn't have press conferences, he shouldn't let people know what his views are. And I absolutely agree 
but the crisis we face around the, 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 the bullying scandal and implementing the Dame Laura Cox report and the Gemma White report is absolutely essential. So we need to reset the dial, we need a new tone, a new direction, and I think the first priority is to have someone who is uh, always courteous and uh, shows respect to everyone because, uh, as Chris rightly pointed out, it's, it's not just the MPs, it's the thousands of other people working in the Palace of Westminster who deserve that respect. And if it's not shown from the top downwards, you're not going to improve the culture. And so I think it is a question of restoring trust and confidence. And you mentioned, uh, Harriet, about the, the, the public and the lack of public confidence in Parliament. That is incredibly important as well. But if you absolutely change the tone at the top, uh, and there's a new style in place. Maybe a speaker who doesn't become a household name overnight and who the, the public don't really recognise would not be a bad thing. And after all, you never hear of good umpires uh, when the game uh, goes smoothly and the game goes well. Two specific things. I think the speaker should be more accountable because the only way to get rid of a speaker is the nuclear option of, of, a, of a confidence vote, an EDM. I think the speaker should be elected, re-elected by secret ballot at the start of every parliament, by secret ballot. And my two other priorities, I think that uh, the whole issue of restoration and renewal, we have to get right. I've got some very strong views on that. And also, we've had controversy over the Speaker's interpretation of uh, Erskine May and the Standing Orders. I would get the Law Commission to look at the, the, all of those three areas in detail and report back. Thank you very much indeed, and thank you all in, very much for keeping so brilliantly to time. I hope we'll be a sign of things to come in response to the questions. Um, so firstly, just a question from me. You've, several of you have referred, and I'm, and I'm going to put one, just a warning, Harriet, this one to you first, um, because it's something you mentioned at the end of your answer. A lot of you spoke about uh, a breakdown in trust in Parliament, but I think, it, you know, and the public's view of Parliament and what, what you might want to do about that. But I think another issue, as we've seen in the past few years, is a breakdown of trust within Parliament, and actually, uh, a lot of the way in which Parliament works relies on trust and relies on people believing that they're going to do certain things in, in the way they've said they will and so on. Um, and I think there's a, you know, there's a real issue, uh, I don't know if you would all agree, but I think uh, in, in the relationship between Parliament and government, and that has broken down in relation to Brexit, I w would like to understand from you each um, what approach you think you would take as Speaker to managing the relationship between government and parliament. Okay. Well, I think clarity on this is really important as the next speaker takes the chair. I think the question you've posed is really central uh, to the debate and discussion around this election. Now, having been in the cabinet, I know that government have got a, got a job to do and the speaker must enable and support them in getting on with it. But also, it helps to have been in government to know and to be able to identify when the government is just trying to run rings around Parliament and taking the mick. And from the chair, I would not allow that to happen. I think that you have to be very clear as Speaker that whilst you're neutral and impartial and fair as between parties and political issues that come into the House, you are not neutral or impartial as between Parliament and government. You have to be champion of Parliament. You have to be on Parliament's side. Now, when I was leader of the House in the Cabinet, I made sure that I had good relations with the Speaker. That relationship is very important. If I was Speaker, I would make sure as well that that would be the case. But also, I was able to command confidence across the House um, and work on a cross-party basis. So I think you have to 
demonstrate your fairness, but you also have to be clear about the constitutional position, which is the minority must have its say, but the majority must have its way. And as far as SO24 <coughs> is concerned, I'm afraid it's all too clear that it really is just the Speaker's discretion. All the standing orders are owned by the House, not by the Executive or not by anybody else. And therefore, the Speaker's discretion and the lack of transparency, which is in the rules, I think needs to be changed. So I think that power should continue to reside with the Speaker, but be exercised in a way which is more accountable and more transparent. I think sharing powers with Parliament is important, and that's why I suggest a Speaker's conference to rebalance the powers between the Speaker and the House, but not to rebalance the powers between the House and Government. Thank you. Meg, would you like to... Uh, well, yes, like Harriet, I've been in government for, I was three years in government, I've been in the shadow cabinet as well. So in normal times, you'd have a government with a majority and a lot of these issues wouldn't arise. We're not in normal times now. And of course, the Speaker's job is to champion Parliament. But a lot of this is what you call good old-fashioned politics. And I chair the Public Accounts Committee, which is cross-party. That's four parties. But I work with colleagues across the House, at Whitehall, um, all sorts of uh, different interests to make sure that we do our robust constitutional job, but that it's done even-handedly and fairly. And I think that's really the essence of what a good speaker should be doing. So it's about making sure that you are setting out the very clear parameters of what your expected behaviour is. There are some issues with the standing orders, as others alluded to. I'm sure we'll get detailed questions on SO24. But the loose wording of some of those will need to be looked into. But that's the rule book, ultimately, will determine what the speaker can do. But it's a bit more than that. It is about that influence and about sometimes banging heads together to make sure that you resolve those issues so that actually it's less unedifying for the public when it's played out. And when you think in the past, governments with big majorities have bowed to motions passed by Parliament, and now we have a government with a no majority that's not doing that, that is putting the boot really on Parliament's foot to make sure it makes a good stand, and the Speaker has a very important role in championing Parliament in those reasons. Just on the SO24, of course, it wouldn't have passed if there hadn't been a majority for it. So whatever, you can take, you know, just taking away the decision for a moment, which I'm sure we'll get into, if there hadn't been a majority for it, it wouldn't have got through. So that was the will of the House in the end that spoke. Well, let's face it, we're in, a very, we're in a very unusual situation. We are in uncharted territory because we have a government that doesn't have a majority and the normal thing that happens when a government doesn't have a majority is that we dissolve and have a general election in order to have a new <coughs> parliament. Now, all the rules and precedents have been, have been written or followed uh, on that basis. Now here, this is completely new. Because of the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, then we don't just dissolve and get a new parliament. So being in uncharted territory doesn't mean you have to say, uh, oh, all the rules and conventions are rubbish because they don't apply just now. What we have to do is keep level heads, those of us who have any kind of say in this at all, keep level heads and say, this is the point where parliament must behave with responsibility uh, where the speaker, where the speaker ought to be an anchor of proceedings rather than a captain of the ship. And it is an extremely difficult um, situation. I had a, a similar situation recently where as deputy speaker I had to decide because 
this particular controversial issue arose during committee stage of a bill when it's the deputy speakers who choose the, uh, the um, amendments, to select the amendments to be voted upon and, uh, and debated. And I was told that it wasn't in order for me to select certain new clauses to a certain bill because it wouldn't normally be done like that and hadn't been done like that in the past. But I knew that if I selected those new clauses, then I was implementing the will of the House. So I had on one hand, well, I, I was pretty sure. I didn't know I was implementing the will of the House because you don't know until the vote takes place. But if you've been in the Speaker's <coughs> chair or at the top of government for a long time, you get a feel for it, don't you? You know that. Um, and I was told I shouldn't do this because it hadn't been done before. And I did it. I allowed those, amend those new clauses to be um, debated and I allowed them to be voted on and both of them were passed by enormous majorities, more than 200. So I breathed a sigh of relief to have it proved that I was implementing the will of the House. Now that's where the Speaker has to show discretion. But it has to be discretion which is trusted. And I'm afraid that we're on the verge. I am not going to criticize John Burko. I'm not in that business. We've been friends for 32 years. I've worked well with him for the last six years. And I'm not interested in making criticism of him. But I think it's obvious to every academic person in, in this room who observes Parliament that we're in an unusual situation where the Speaker is at loggerheads with the government. That it would be better if it were not so. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Hannah. Um, can I just, at the outset, make it clear that when I criticise the Speaker, uh, it is a statement of fact, and I don't think there's anything wrong in stating facts as people perceive them to be. Uh, this is nothing personal. Uh, Speaker Burko used to sit next to me before um, he was elevated to the position of Speaker, and we used to get along very well, and indeed he used to assist me and guide me when I was a new Member of Parliament. But I do think that if we are having a discussion in terms of succeeding him, then it is important to say what we would do differently. And in criticizing him or commenting on his activities, I make clear what I would be doing differently. And if that is seen as being criticism, then I'm sorry, but it is simply intended to be uh, how the new system would be if I were to be the speaker. The relationship between government and parliament, as the question asks, is one of a fine balance. And incidentally, may I also say that um, I've served as a minister in government, as an opposition minister uh, or shadow minister when I was shadow deputy leader of the Commons for three and a half years. I've been a government whip, and I've also been on the administration committee, the financial and services committee, uh, and, and also, of course, been a backbencher. So I have a varied background in terms of recognizing the duties that a speaker would have in terms of his answerability to all those people, not just backbenchers. The relationship between government and parliament is one of a fine balance. Certainly, the speaker has to ensure that the executive is held to account. But I think we need to recognize that governments have to get through their business. And what we are finding at the moment is that urgent questions and statements are going on and on and on. Earlier this week, we had five urgent questions. Now, the consequence of this is that 
the legislation that was due to be debated following the urgent questions and statements, <coughs> the time allowed for that legislation is curtailed. That is important legislation which will impact on millions and millions of citizens. And we need to therefore make sure that there is proper debate for that legislation, which frankly right now is being curtailed. And there have been occasions when, because the statements and urgent questions have gone on for so long, uh, that the debates have actually had to be rearranged for subsequent days, which of course puts pressure in uh, the whole system in terms of timetabling time other legislation procedures. So what I would do is to make sure that urgent questions were shortened. I would certainly put discipline on the speakers. Contributions can be made, and, and I think the speaker can set an example by being uh, brief, but then that extends to all the contributors. But also to recognize the government has to get its business done. And may I just say one other thing, and we've all recognized that the duty of the speaker is to the parliament. But I don't think that it is right that a UK speaker should be colluding with senior people of another parliament whose objective is different to the objective of the UK parliament. That is wrong, it is unacceptable, and it is completely, completely against the principles of impartiality. Okay, uh, Henry... Do you want to go next? I, I certainly agree with uh, Charles about, uh, about the UQs. I think you strike a balance between having Michael Martin, I think uh, Chris pointed out that he had three UQs in, uh, in eight years. So uh, we, a year. Uh, uh, right, a year. <laughs> and we, we didn't need uh, And we quite often have 300 uh, uh, a year now. So somewhere between the two. I think, how do you restore trust between the, the, the chair and government? Well, well, first of all, you treat government with respect and courtesy. You, you, you don't make gratuitously rude remarks to ministers. Uh, for example, quite recently, there was uh, a former deputy chief whip was told by the speaker that he was a useless deputy chief whip when he was deputy chief whip and he should get on and do his job. You can't have that level of rudeness. I think that where, and we'll probably come on to this, Hannah, in a moment, I just want to mention, go back to the, the, the three areas where there's been criticism from the government about the chair recently, SO24, uh, amending government motions and allowing repeat votes. The, the, there is a lot of grey area in, uh, in, in Erskine May and in the uh, standing orders, but I would get the Law Commission to look at this and see what lessons can be learned for the future. And I also think that, uh, that the government needs to know that Parliament, the building, the whole estate is being really well run. And I would look actually at some of the management structures there, including maybe bringing back a position like the sergeant arms that had overall control of a lot of the, the, the more of the mundane but vital stuff. And he would also be, for example, in the past, responsible for dealing with bullying. Thank you. Uh, it sounded like he was doing it, the way you put it there. <laughs> um, uh, look, um, I think common courtesy is a really important <coughs> aspect of making sure that Parliament works properly. Years ago, um, some Japanese rail experts came to London to try and work out why we managed to get twice as many people into the same space on a tube train as they did in Tokyo. And they worked out it was because we let people off the train first. Um, so our common courtesy was actually a, a really good standard thing in British society. And I think we should... Um, we, there should just be more of it in Parliament. Weirdly, though this has been a very strange Parliament, uh, partly because of um, the subject matter that we're dealing with, um, I'm not going to say the word, um, but also because of, uh, indeed I'm hoping that if I, well, 
one of the good reasons for standing for speaker is that you never have to have a view on Brexit again. Um, but um, my, uh, the, 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 one of the strange things about this parliament is not only that we've been dealing with that, but also that it's, there's not been a majority. And both political parties, main political parties, have lost significant numbers of their own MPs from the whip. Uh, it's never happened before in a parliament that, that I can think of. And um, despite that, actually, the friendships across political divides at the moment are quite intense. Um, partly for personal reasons, because there are people you know, just worrying about whether they're going to be able to go to their um, uh, medical test or whatever. Um, and so their people are cooperating to make sure that they can across the house. Um, or just because um, it's the, you know, people are trying to de uh, defy their own party front bench <laughs> um, to secure a particular outcome. And I was a minister uh, for all of 337 days. I know it because it says on my pension slip that it was 337 <laughs> days. And the vast majority of my time, I've been a backbencher. Um, and uh, I think backbenchers are in a good place to um, understand how the speaker's job works because in the end, it, you, you really, this was one of the important things that Burko did say from the beginning and why urgent questions have been so important because he has been the backbencher's champion. Um, when that has slipped over into um, a confrontation between the chair and the government, I think that that is unfortunate. But the main thing is you should be the backbencher's champion so that every constituency in the land has an opportunity to know that their MP will get the fair crack of the whip. The one thing I don't want to do as an MP, uh, a speaker rather, is I don't want to go around the country and talk about how wonderful Parliament and, is and all of that. I actually just want to do the job in the House properly. I want to get the order back. I, we need to do a, spend a lot more attention on um, making sure that the building itself is run properly and it's a safe place for everybody to work. Thank you. So I'm going to open up to questions from the floor now. Um, if you could say your name and where you're from. If there's anyone next door who wants to ask a question, please do come through. And then, oh, dramatic. Um, we have raving mics. I don't know where the raving mics are. Maddie. Um, Thank you very much, Sarah Charles Birkbeck, University of London, and author of the Good Parliament Report. Um, the House has been committed to the principle of iDiversity-sensitive Parliament since 2016. In 2018, it underwent an interparliamentary union gender-sensitive Parliament audit. Many of you have raised some of those issues, Cox and White, but more widely too. I just wondered what will you do as Speaker to take that agenda forward and how? Because it's very easy to talk about being committed to the principles of these more representative, more inclusive and more engaged House. But what will you actually do as Speaker to take that agenda forward? Thank you. Thank you. Chris, do you want to start? So uh, went last, last time. Okay. Um, a great report, and I remember you coming to uh, chat to me about it uh, before you produced it. I think the most important thing that, where the speaker can actually do something themselves is to try and help towards the predictability of timing of votes. Um, because um, this is the bit that really drives people spare. I got the library to do some research over the last session of Parliament. 50% um, of Tuesdays and Wednesday evenings, which are meant to have votes at 7, the moment of interruption at 7, have gone on beyond that time for the main substantive business. That means that 50% of the time, MPs who may have family responsibilities and personal responsibilities or whatever, um, have no certainty as to when they're going to be able to leave the parliamentary estate on a Tuesday and a Wednesday evening. That's just a nonsense. Um, and, and actually... Um, there's a good argument to say that sometimes an SO24, if it's going to be granted, because it probably won't be 
um, a highly contentious one that's voted on, um, should be after the votable business. And the speaker could decide that perfectly easily if um, he or she wanted to. Um, likewise, I think there's a good argument to say that maybe urgent questions, some of them could be taken later. They may be urgent, but nonetheless, um, they could be taken after the votable business. Now, that would require a change to the standing orders, but I don't know that all, all that meant that people would be opposed if it was in the interest of the, of the whole of the House. So that's my main thing, is to try and strive for predictability of timing. Thank you very much. Harriet, do you want to... Well, thank you, Sarah, for all your excellent work that you've done on the Good Parliament and, and prior to that. I think that the task of the new speaker in relation to equality and diversity is that you've got to have a track record of reform. You've got to know how to do reform in this uh, area. And you've also got to be pro-reform in how you conduct the office. Now, I don't think it's for the speaker to, by dictat, dictate the reforms that they would like to see the next wave of reforms. But I think they've got to have a pro-reform stance because when the House stands still, then the outside world moves on. And actually one of the things that I've been doing is going around the country, listening to what people are actually saying about Parliament, not talking about Brexit or the health service or the political parties, but saying, what do you think about Parliament? And there's no doubt that what they say is that in their workplaces, they are thinking about how they treat each other, about diversity, about mutual support. They switch on the TV and see a House of Commons that seems to be going in the opposite direction. So I think you have to be in tune with where the public is going. You have to be committed to equality and you have to have a proven track record of reform. And when I was leader of the House, I brought in the election of chairs of select committees, which I think was an important reform, as well as the backbench business committee, as well as changing the speaker's pension. Well, there was a row about that one, but that is sorted out in the, in the correct way. And as a backbencher, um, I brought forward the reform on proxy voting, which a lot of people disagreed with at the time, but now it's implemented. I think it was a jolly good idea, and curiously, I think it's their idea, but which is the best way. So I think, have you got a track record of reform, and are you pro-reform? Because you've got to move things forward, working with people such as yourself and across the House. Thank you. Meg? Well, um, like Harriet and Eleanor, I, I've been a mum. In, I'm a mum in Parliament. I arrived with two young children, had a baby while I was here. I was the first minister actually to have proper ministerial cover. That's an issue really for the government, and, but there are still issues there, I think, uh, for women who go on maternity leave. And I had a proper maternity leave, properly planned, properly sorted <coughs> out. But it's what's been really interesting to me is that I've passed that on to many women of all parties, um, and there, are still, there is still no proper formal way of advising and supporting women who are going on maternity leave who are members. But for both members and staff, there is a real poverty of facilities for certain things you may need to do if you come back and you're a breastfeeding mother but without your baby with you. There are, it is, it's barely legal uh, what we do and what's available in the house. Obviously, restoration and renewal will help to challenge that. I've already fed my views in, but that's some way off. There's more that needs to be done, and it is appalling to me that even with pressure, there's still very little that's been taken on board. And I think that brings me as well. We talk about members and MPs. Uh, we do have resources you know, uh, that are better than a lot of the staff. And it is really important that if we're going to make Parliament a proper, diverse, and uh, well-run place, we need to grapple with this bullying and harassment issue. And just get MPs to be better managers. It is too old-fashioned to say, oh, well, we're 650 independent businesses. There's no continuity of service for staff. 
So if they have, uh, they don't accrue maternity rights, for example, or sickness absence rights, if they change, so if someone works for Harriet and then works for me, for example, they would just start all over again. Um, there's very, many offices provide no training or development or appraisal processes for their staff. These are basics in the outside world. And however much, you know, we all individually try much. I was just actually discussing with my own head of office we were, how we're going to update some of our procedures. And we realised we keep writing our own. <laughs> And it's a bit silly, why don't we have some central resource? Why are we still recruiting people, most people, by CV? Why isn't there a standard application form? All the equality uh, <coughs> literature tells us that if you have a, an application form, you get, a just, you get a fairer, more open recruitment process. So we need to do that, because if we don't set the tone ourselves in our own offices, we will just fall behind. And that makes a difference, I think, to the general working atmosphere. Thank you. Well, Sarah, I'm assuming that most of you, or if not all of you, have seen um, Sarah's wonderful report on the Good Parliament. I wish, from the bottom of my heart, that you'd done it 10 years earlier than you did. Because it was only when I spoke to Sarah at some length and on many occasions about what we could do to improve Parliament that I realised what a really tough time I personally had had for my first 10 years as a Member of Parliament, which included becoming a mother. No maternity leave, no help whatsoever. Indeed, a whole lot of colleagues who said to me, well, I assume you'll be giving up then, because you're obviously not coming here with a baby. Well, of course, I didn't give up, but I felt that I kind of fought on alone. I'll pay tribute to Harriet here for being a role model. <laughs> for being a role model. Of, uh, of having fought an election. You fought a general election when you were, when you were pregnant. I fought, you fought a by-election when you were pregnant. I fought a general election when I was pregnant. Ah, but, but we did it. You know, we weren't ill. We did it. And if we want Parliament, if we want Parliament to be representative of all the people out there in our society, then we have to make it possible for all different kinds of people from different ages, different walks of life, etc., and different stages in their own life um, to come into Parliament. Great reforms start with one little step. And I remember very well uh, when I was a new whip on the opposition benches and Betty Boothroyd was Speaker. And of course, I mean, come on, this is the, this is the Conservative Party of many years ago. I was made a whip. Nobody told me what to do. So I, out I went there and sat on the whip's bench. And Betty called me over. I was terrified. I hadn't dared speak to her. And I didn't realize just the extent to which you had to go on your tiptoes to get to speak. Well, I did. Not on, on tiptoes to get to speak to the speaker in the speaker's chair. And she told me how she had been an opposition whip many years previously. And she told me what to do. She was utterly approachable and was a great help to me and another role model, obviously she still is, but you know, she was terrific in the speaker's chair. And the other thing she did was that she held you know, parties and events in speaker's house, not, not for other people outside, but for members of parliament to get to know each other. The one little step that I would take as the beginning of looking at reform, I'm not suggesting that this would solve everything, is to make the speaker more accessible by having what I would call a speaker's advisory group, an informal speaker's advisory group, um, with published names on it, 
with members of parliament from, from all intakes, all ages, all parties, maybe a dozen people, and then their friends would know that they were on that group and they could talk to them about things they'd like to talk to the speaker about because right now the speaker is not accessible and great reform is necessary. Let's start with a little bit of reform that would actually make immediate improvement. Thank you. Thank you, Hannah, and thank you, Sarah, for raising a very good question, and also thank you for sending me the article uh, which you did yesterday. Um, the issue that you raise is fundamental to Parliament reflecting 21st century Britain. Uh, there is a, a lot that has been done, but there's a huge, huge amount more that needs to be done. I welcome the Speaker's Work Placement Scheme, which allows people to have uh, experience of Parliament from backgrounds where otherwise they would not have had that opportunity. The creche is uh, welcome for working parents uh, and of course the proxy voting that has been introduced for uh, new mothers uh, who have to uh, exercise vote, that uh, is, is also very much appreciated. I think we could go further, we could consider for example uh, facilities for mothers for breastfeeding uh, because uh, there are children in the uh, Palace of Westminster now which they weren't before, I was elected 14 and a half years ago, but uh, some of my colleagues uh, much longer would never have heard a child. Uh, so times are changing. I agree entirely with what Chris said, uh, that uh, if you look around at the staff of the House of Commons, uh, most of the non-white community are in the kitchens uh, or are cleaners, and that's got to change. Uh, what I would like to think, however, is that if I were to be the speaker, my own background, uh, I'm an immigrant. I came to this country at the age of four, unable to speak a word of English. I went to primary school in inner city Birmingham. My father was a carpenter. Uh, and I came to this country at a time when it was legal to have signs outside bed and bra breakfast saying, no blacks, no coloreds, no Irish, no dogs. I've come from that environment. I would like to see a whole lot more people who not only come from that background, but also from other backgrounds where they would never have even dreamed of getting into Parliament. And what I would like to think is that if I were elected as Speaker, I would send a powerful message to every single child in this country, black, white, brown, boy, girl. And that message would be, if that bloke Vara can make it from his background, then I certainly can. <coughs> what we need are more role models. And we need to make sure that we, collectively, as MPs, and then ultimately the Speaker, who would have huge power, make sure that reforms take place. And as Chairman of the House of Commons Commission, the Speaker would be in a position to drive changes, to make sure that there are better opportunities for disabled people, for women, for minorities, and that way we can progress. And I very much hope to conclude that when we have the restoration and renewal program, which I accept needs to go ahead, but when it does go ahead, one of the central features in there will be to make sure that there's proper and easy access for disabled people, uh, and, and that there are better facilities for women, better and more facilities, because right now we have some 200 women MPs, 
but that's going to continue going up. And right now, the facilities are predominantly male-orientated, but we need to change that balance. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. I, I certainly agree with what Charlie said just then, so I won't repeat it. But I think that we, we definitely need to have a, a, a program of business that is more predictable and, and certainly more uh, user-friendly. MPs living away from London, uh, certainly uh, people with families. And just a, you know, a very simple example, we've had quite a thin legislative program the last year and a half. And yet, time and again, we, we have government business on a Monday that goes beyond 10 o'clock, having had maybe two statements in a UQ. Well, why Monday? And then you have, you have no business at all on the Thursday. So I think the way business is managed it is, it takes absolutely no account of families. And I, I would also be quite bold, and I would get a group of IPSA because I think that, uh, and this is not popular with the media, but we have a, a regulator and a service provider in the same building. Yeah. And I would have a tiny regulator of two or three people, and then I'd have a service provider that actually looked at how they can help families. And uh, I'm not talking about giving MPs more money, I'm just uh, talking about at the margin of trying to make life a little bit easier for people. And uh, I was first elected actually, uh, not in 2001, but in 83. Uh, but uh, an ungrateful electorate uh, put me into retirement uh, uh, soon afterwards, and I came back in 2001. But when I first came here, but there was absolutely no help whatsoever in, in, in setting up an office and employing people. And I, I was fortunate because I had actually uh, been in a, in a job where I had, had employed people. But most MPs uh, come to Parliament with absolutely no idea at all about employment practice and about how to manage people. And I think having help on that at an early stage would be, would be really vital. And just one other very quick point. I think that what John Burke has done with the Education Centre has been quite fantastic. But I, I would want to do much more on paid internships uh, across Parliament, and not just for MPs, but in other parts of Parliament as well. Thank you. Chris, have you been? You have been, haven't you? Yes. <laughs> I was very memorable, obviously. <laughs> I, just add no. I don't want to sound like I'm one of Chris's um, history books, but um, when I was first elected an MP in 1982, nobody told me that actually I could get money to employ a secretary, because in those days it was, you know, secretaries with a, a typewriter. So I actually paid my secretary out of my parliamentary um, salary. And it wasn't until about nine months that somebody told me um, I could claim for it. I mean, it was that Byzantine. We've made masses of progress, but by goodness me, we're so behind the curve always. Uh, I'm... Yeah, I claim my money back. <laughs> 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 late. Meg Russell from the Constitution Unit at UCL. And I was also specialist advisor to the Right Committee. Um, and I have to say, Harriet, that while I hugely applaud your record on gender equality, my clear recollection is that the government did everything that it could at that time to block the establishment of the Backbench Business Committee. But it's on those issues that I wanted to, um, it's on those issues that I wanted to ask a question on the control of the agenda. We've clearly had a lot of controversy in that area in recent months regarding the so-called seizing control of the agenda by backbenchers. And I think the controversies over SO24 are to do with the difficulties of backbenchers being able to get time on the agenda. So I just wonder whether the panel agrees that we now need a review of standing orders in that area, that it is a problem, um, particularly at a time of minority government, that a majority may not be able, that Commons majority cannot control the agenda, and what you think the correct vehicle would be for having such a review if you would support one. Well, yes, certainly. I mean, in my opening remarks, I said that there was an issue 
in that there was the exercise of discretion in uh, this situation. And what we need to do is we need to have clarity so that actually for the benefit of the speaker, so that if the speaker takes a particular decision, whatever that decision is, there are going to be some people who are going to be aggrieved because it doesn't fit with the way they wanted matters to proceed. So to avoid the speaker being put in that difficult position, we need to have clarity so that the speaker is not only impartial, but seen to be impartial. And therefore, it is right that there should be some sort of committee. I don't know what you'd call it, but it would be a group of uh, the great and good uh, who know, who've been, who have a lot of experience of parliament, uh, parliamentarians, but non-parliamentarians as well, uh, some of the people in this audience perhaps, and I think we need to seriously look at the rules to make sure that we don't find ourselves in the position that we are in at present when we have a speaker who is actually using his discretion and his partiality is coming into question. Thank you. I think we'll just go this way up the line if that works. Thank you. Um, this question gets to the very crux of the matter of how Parliament is working or not working efficiently right now. There's plenty of time. Parliament sits from half past two on a Monday till half past five on a Thursday. There is loads of time. I have personally, and the other deputy speakers have, sat in the chair hour after hour on Thursday afternoons, late Wednesdays, and other times of the week, which people don't see as prime time, so they don't come to Parliament. I've many times sat there with maybe six members in the room. And then I hear somebody say to the Leader of the House at uh, Business Questions, why can't we have time to debate um, you know, fishing in um, the Firth of Clyde? They could have gone to the Backbench Business Committee and put in an application and got three hours on fishing on the Firth of Clyde on a Thursday afternoon, but nobody wants to be there on a Thursday afternoon. They don't really mean, is there time? Is there actually time for this? What they mean is, I want time at prime time when I will be noticed, which is not the same, not the same thing at all. But um, if you just want a debate, there's plenty of time in adjournment debates and there's plenty of time in backbench business. Um, but the, the first point in your question, Meg, was about um, SO24's emergency debates and, and the use of prime time. Um, uh, like, like Chris, I've read SO24 over and over and over again and trying to, trying, trying to see what could or couldn't be done. It had been normal for emergency debates to be on an anodyne motion with, with no vote. Um, the fact that that has been changed is not wrong. If it were wrong, it couldn't have been done. By definition, it isn't wrong. It is controversial. It is risky. The point about our unwritten constitution is that it has the flexibility to adapt to the times, and as I said earlier, we are in very unusual times. So it's clear that we, we do need a review of the way in which these matters are dealt with because our system depends on adherence to the rule of law 
if you adhere to the rule of law, you have to know what the rules are. If you don't know what the rules are, the system doesn't work. Um, on, on other use of time, uh, this, this point about UQs, we, as deputy speakers, we meet with the speaker every morning to consider this. With one morning this week, we had 41 UQ applications. I'm not joking. We almost ran out of time before the speaker had to go into the chamber to take prayers. 41 UQ applications. You know, members of parliament have actually got to be just a little bit responsible and not say, oh, here is something I care about, therefore I think it's urgent. And uh, Speaker Berto has, has a very good phrase for this, UIOM, urgent in the mind of the member. And he's totally right about that. He sometimes has a very difficult, well, we all do, a very difficult balance as to whether you, you, you bring in the urgent matter. And yes, it might then mean that, that, uh, that well, of course, UQs don't have to run for more than an hour each. That's a piece of nonsense. They could be an awful lot shorter and therefore not disrupt business. But if business is disrupted a little bit and people have to be here until 8 o'clock instead of 7 o'clock, you know, this is a serious job and, and members of parliament have to do it. Just a very small point on urgent questions. I think that there is confusion sometimes when urgent questions are granted as to what is urgent and what is topical. And I think it's important to remember that because sometimes urgent questions are granted when it is a topical issue, but there's absolutely nothing urgent about it. And that distinction you needs to be borne in mind. Well, Madam Deputy Speaker, I have to listen through a lot of urgent questions that aren't urgent. So I can tell you, I can, you know, they certainly should be treated as topical and not be tabled in the first place. If it's opaque to members, what about, what about the members of the public who are trying to understand how on earth the water paper and everything works? I think we either need a speaker's commission or another version of rights. We've got right two, which was never, of course, implemented. Um, and I think we probably need to have constitutional law you know, experts like you, Meg, or you know, Lord Norton would be part of that, but actually practitioners in the House too, because I think if we just leave it to our academics, with all respect, you know, we, we, we have to work with that. And I think we've seen, but with it's SO24, of course, we did see two precedents where non-neutral motions were passed. Well, the, the first was on the BBC Charter in a non-neutral motion, and they weren't challenged then. So as, as Eleanor says, the decision wasn't wrong. It was, it was, we can go into the detail of why it was more controversial, because he liaised two issues at the same time. But in the end, it was the House that voted for it. Uh, by a majority of one. But I think it, we've also got the Backbench Business Committee, which was really great as it started. I think there's a real opportunity there to do more though. But the government of the day, and it has for some time, ignores motions passed on a Thursday or at other okay. times when they are. And they are so the, the House often doesn't divide on them, but the House is considered, doesn't divide, so it's therefore the position of the House, but nothing happens. So I think there's a really interesting thing there. So members are debating an interesting, important issue, not an urgent question, but an important issue. Um, in neutral terms, generally speaking, but nothing much comes of it. And I think we need to see much more clear follow-through. Something I've done on the Public Accounts Committee, we get the Treasury Minutes every quarter, and we're really doing a lot of work to follow up on those Treasury Minutes. And it was interesting, because the Whitehall Insider said, I'm glad you're doing this, because some departments would send any old guff and think it would get through. And when you start reading them, people say, yes, we agree to your recommendation, and then they proceed to explain why they don't. 
or no, we don't agree, and then proceed to say why they do. And we brought, we call people back into the room, into the committee room, and had three in the early days overturned in the room. And I said to the one, one permanent secretary, why didn't you just answer the Treasury Minute the way you've just answered it now? You've gone completely back on what you said. And they said, well, I've been in the job two weeks, I just signed it off. Now, that is not a good way. So we're not always very good at follow-through in Parliament. I think you know, individual members will be dogged on an individual issue, but I think we could systemise that a lot more and make it much easier for individual members to see where the thing that they raised in Parliament has actually gone and get government to respond better. So I've got experience of doing that with the Treasury Minute, and I think we could do that far more thoroughly. All right. So um, just firstly on UQ's urgent questions, um, because obviously I was leader of the House before we went into opposition, so I saw at close hand um, under the previous speaker, before Speaker Burko, what the situation was, which is why I looked up the figures to just check my memory was, you know, the difference was as great as it was. And in the last 12 months before Speaker Burko took over, two urgent questions were involved in that whole year. And in the last 12 months that we've just had, a Speaker Burko, Speaker Burko um, allowed 152 urgent questions. And there's two things about that. The first is that what used to happen is that there would be massively controversial things happening on television, on the radio, in the newspapers that were being discussed in people's workplaces, and they wouldn't be being discussed in Parliament because the government didn't want them to be discussed and the Speaker accommodated government. So it had a, a, a vicious circle whereby members didn't even put in for UQs, let alone get them granted. And the House were regarded as irrelevant, the place where things were not discussed, even though they were incredibly topical. And of course, it did not endear John Burkow to the government that actually he granted these UQs. Ministers would be much happier perched in their departments, not exposed to the outside world, and having to answer difficult questions. But I think that's been one of the significant things of his speakership, that it's joined in Parliament to the outside debate and held uh, ministers to account. And I think, by the way, that we ought to publish the UQ applications that are not granted. So much... Well, so... So much um, is not transparent, and I think that everywhere that we can bring transparency, uh, we should. As far as the backbench business committee is concerned, which is something which, as I was leader of the House, we put before the House and got approval for, um, I think that that has proved very important and very worthwhile. I mean, there's numerous occasions where debates have come to the House uh, which otherwise would not have found time in government business. For example, the proxy voting. We couldn't get the leader of the House to schedule time for proxy voting uh, in government time, so we went on a cross-party basis to the Backbench Business Committee and managed to get uh, proxy voting uh, through the backbench uh, business debate route. As far as government business is concerned, we had a proposal that was put to the House and was agreed when I was leader of the House that there should be a House business committee whereby the government and backbenchers would agree what the House business would be and it would not be the monopoly control of the government. 
that was not only agreed by the House and by us when we were in government, it was agreed by David Cameron and the Conservative Party, um, and they promised that they would implement it when they actually came into government. But unfortunately, they didn't, and it got dropped. And that is something which is a matter for the government and the House, I would say, to return to. But as far as Standing Order 24 or Standing Order 14 or any of the other Standing Orders is concerned, I just think the approach we need to take, and I think we should have a speaker's conference on this, is to make sure there is more transparency, more accountability, more checks and balances. The speakership is the one great office which is entirely unreformed in terms of the masses of discretion, but without accountability or transparency. But I think that that should be accountability to Parliament, um, not to government, because ultimately we have a parliamentary democracy and they must have the final say. And the standing orders are the property of the House. They are not the property of the government. And that's why I think Eleanor is exactly right to say if the House has agreed something, by definition, it's right, because every member is elected and they must have their will. Thank you. Chris. Uh, urgent questions, just first briefly. Um, I, I, de I don't know whether you've seen the musical Hamilton. Um, I didn't particularly like it very much, but there's one song that I really did like in it, which is uh, The Room Where It Happens, because it seems to me that is fundamentally what politics is all about, The Room Where It Happens. And, uh, and government always, of course, wants The Room Where It Happens to be number 10 Downing Street, or the Cabinet Room. Um, I think The Room Where It Happens should be the Chamber of the House of Commons. And so I think, notwithstanding the points that Charlotte rightly makes, that sometimes I think there have been maybe too many urgent questions. Some of them could have perhaps been done in a couple of points of order rather uh, more swiftly. Um, but uh, nonetheless, I, uh, I like the idea of having urgent questions. So even if they're not urgent, but they are certainly very, very topical, the Chamber of the House of Commons is the room where it happens. Um, just, um, Meg, to answer directly, I, I completely agree with you that we need a review, or at least I think that's what you were hinting, um, that we need a review of the standing orders. I mean, um, I slightly disagree with Harriet because in a sense, the standing orders under our system are the property of the government because the government is, in the normal course of things, is the only, um, a government minister is the only person who can table an amendment to a standing order in the normal course of things and have precedence for it and be sure that it's going to be debated and voted on. Um, so, and that's one of the things about our system, that it is very winner-takes-it-all. If you are the government, you have all the rules in your hands and you can determine when the House sits and all the rest of it. I mean, one of the standing orders that I think is bizarre um, is the one on the, um, a, a recess, like a summer recess, or, which can only be tabled by a government minister and has to be taken without amendment forthwith. And now, uh, in the 1930s, in, um, uh, uh, there, there were big rows about the summer recess because it was felt that Chamberlain was trying to prevent the House from sitting when people might want to consider, you know, the situation in relation to Nazi Germany. And if they succeeded, the House wouldn't have been sitting Exa on the 3rd of exactly. September. The war broke out. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, yeah. and, but at that time, others could it's amend true. the motion. But now, um, I think it's since, I can't remember who's, who, 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 um, no it wasn't, it was a Conservative government that changed the, um, the, the standing order to make it only a government minister that can table it and that it cannot be amended. So I think there are lots of things that need to be changed, but, and I guess the right route, as Harriet said, is a speaker's conference to do that, but you've got to have 
you, the government has got to sign up to that. They have to table the motion for their speakers' conference and the terms and conditions and, and all the um, terms of reference and, and all the rest of it. Um, where, incidentally, I think one of the another odd standing order is the one relation to backbench business committee because it's very restrictive about what can actually happen in backbench business time. And uh, we we wouldn't have gone, the house would not have gone down the SO24 route, I think if the backbench business committee time could have been used to do some of these other things as well. Um, I, I happened to come top of the, the private members ballot last year, um, no, two years ago now, wasn't it? Still the same parliamentary session. Um, and managed to, get, managed to get my bill through, which was brilliant. I was really pleased about that. But the private members bill process is nonsense. And the procedure yeah, committee has repeatedly um, re uh, urged reform of this. But it depends on a government to table the amendments um, for it to happen. Now, maybe at this moment, where the government doesn't have a majority, we would be able to bring about change that... Um, but in the end, as much as a speaker might want to do that, um, it, it has to be with the cooperation of government and, I would say, opposition and uh, future government. Thank the you. The worst bit we do of all is, go is government expenditure, which we barely scrutinise at all in Parliament, notwithstanding um, Meg's committee. Yes, hang on to your cues. I think that, as I said earlier, the, the, it's one of the great revolutions that uh, Speaker Boko has brought in. It's empowered backbenchers. Uh, I've been successfully being granted a UQ. I've also been a minister who's been dragged out of my office in Whitehall to the House at a few hours' notice with panicking officials. So I've seen it from both sides. But I, I would certainly, as Speaker, I wouldn't let UQs run for so long. I think they need to be short and sharp, maybe 45 minutes, one hour. On, on SO24, I think that... But there were three areas where there's been quite a lot of controversy over the Speaker's uh, uh, decisions. One was SO24, uh, allowing the, the SO24 application and then obviously the, the private member's bill that flowed from it. Also allowing the amendment of a government motion that wouldn't otherwise previously have been amendable and also disallowing repeated votes on a, on, on a, on a matter. And that there is controversy. Whatever we do with Sandy Orders and Erskine May, there will, be, there will always be grey areas. I mean, I would have a Law Commission uh, report into the, the, the areas where there has been quite a lot of interest and controversy, reporting uh, to, to the House. But I also think the Speaker, in these decisions, because as, as I say, there's always, even when we make changes, there will be grey areas, is to have more transparency. And just as uh, I believe the government shouldn't necessarily uh, publish the legal advice they get, uh, because you're looking at things like national security, I think the Speaker should publish the advice from his clerks uh, on these matters. And I think he should also involve the Deputy Speakers. I think it's staggering that, that uh, John Burko made these very tough, difficult decisions. Uh, and, and the Deputy Speakers apparently didn't even know what was going on. Uh, if I was the Speaker, I would really involve the team. It's a bit like a general leading a division uh, and, and deciding on a key strategy and not telling his brigadiers what he's doing. I mean, it would be unthinkable in the military, and it should also be unthinkable in Parliament as well. Thank you. Now, we have 17 minutes left. I'd like to get through two more questions. I'm told there's a quick one here, and then there's one in the back row. Will there be quick answers? Will there be quick answers? Uh, I certainly hope so. This is a follow-up to the discussion we've just had. A very simple question, seeking a one-word answer. Had you been speaker at the beginning of last month, would you have allowed the procedure that led to the Ben Act? Yes. Yes? Yes. Sir Henry? No. Uh, yes. Uh, one proviso. I hate um, legislation going, a whole bill going through the House in one day. So as Speaker, I would have been saying, you can't do that bit 
because well, I don't like it when governments do that to, either. But you wouldn't have had the power to do that. All you would have had the power to do was either grant it or not grant it. Well, I would have granted it. And you, and you would have... <sighs> <laughs> well, in the end, I would have granted it. I think it's a bit difficult to ask deputies to comment on their on the speaker's mm. um, role. I, I think that, you know, Eleanor is a, is a sitting deputy and I'm not sure it's fair to ask her that because no. it's invidious. You. Um, okay. you know, she's yes. a loyal and supportive deputy and she set out how she would do the job in her own distinct Thank you. I way think differently. Well, but it's for her to decide if she wishes to answer. Yeah. Well, but I don't want her to look evasive when I don't think she is being. It's, 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 thank you, Harriet. It's, it's really difficult and what I will say, Peter, in all honesty, I have sympathy for the difficulty that John Burko yes. had in deciding whether to do it or not. It was on balance. And I, I'm with Eleanor on this. I've looked into it in, in detail. And it, it, you know, the debate about what forthwith means, whether the speaker should have pulled things together so that you knew earlier in the day. So actually for members, that was more information that they could have known. So yes, on balance, having seen what, looked into it in detail, I would say yes. But I, I think the way it's been reported often out there, it sounded like it was some cavalier decision by him. And I think he would have, been, hopefully he was listening to all the advice that we've all seen since mm. uh, looked at. No. Thank you. Question in the back row. Uh, thank you. Uh, Dave Penman, General Secretary of the FDA, one of the unions uh, uh, that represents staff in the House of Commons and represents uh, many of the clerks. Um, I think staff in the House will, will welcome the commitment that you've all given around fully implementing Dame Laura Cox's recommendations, but I'm sure you'll understand that they've heard warm words before. Um, the reason why we're still talking about this is that the House Commission, chaired by the Speaker, and with the Leader of the House as a member, had prevaricated for 12 months uh, because they couldn't decide how to implement the report. So my question to you is, what will you practically do as Speaker to fully implement Dame Laura Cox's recommendation? And will you commit to a time frame for that implementation? Commit to what was the last Thank bit? Sorry? Time, 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 time. Um, first of all, can I commend you and all the people that you represent for the fantastic work that you do. Um, you don't get thanked enough for all that you do for supporting us in what we do. So thank you for that. As far as the Dame Laura Cox report is concerned, you're absolutely right. It was almost a year ago that she came out with her recommendations. There were very warm words from the House of Commons Commission in their re response. They acknowledged the urgency and then they just went out and have been consulting or whatever. Um, it should not have happened and that is a question of leadership because the chairman of the commission, the speaker, should have said this is urgent, we've had the recommendation, there is a problem, bullying, harassment, including sexual harassment, it needs to be sorted. Um, it hasn't been and the commitment I give is that if I'm speaker then the first thing that I would do, the first thing, is to make sure that I put in place a system to get it done within three months. And if there are reasons, because it's been faffing about for 12 months, I would like to call in the chief executive of the Commons, or whoever is responsible, and say, why hasn't it been done? And make it absolutely clear that there's a new change of leadership, and when things are promised, they get done. Thank you. Yeah, and, and, and I would like Rangers to win the FA Cup and by saying that I would make them win the FA Cup, it's not going to actually happen. The point is that it's that very question that I began to look at um, several months ago. 
uh, began to look at, because people talked to me about it, and I was worried about it. I was seriously worried that it hadn't been implemented, because it's really important. And, and, and people who work in the House of Commons have every right to expect it to be implemented. And when I began to ask the questions, which Shailesh has just asked, um, I found that there weren't clear answers. Who should have implemented it? When should the meeting have taken place? Who chaired that meeting? Was it the speaker? Yes. Why didn't he do it? Why didn't this person do that? I kept asking questions, and I couldn't get answers. And this comes down to the very basis of what I said to begin with, that there is no accountability for the speaker, and there is no clear path of accountability for the way in which the House of Commons is managed. Now, there are a lot of good people in there. I'm not criticizing any single person, not even the speaker, um, because everybody's trying to do their job, but there isn't a coherent way in which it all comes together. It just doesn't exist, because basically, we're working with a system uh, which came about the same as a king has power, an archbishop has power, a general has power, and the speaker of the House of Commons, an old man with gray hair, that's what we Thank just you, did, right? <laughs> oh, Henry, I didn't mean you. <laughs> um, though Henry would look great in the wig. Um, the, uh, the Speaker of the House of Commons is an old man with power. And, and the, the times when that was the way we did things are gone. So that's why I say, and I really mean this, we need, we need a comprehensive review of the governance of the House of Commons. That includes the commission, who serves on the commission, how the commission works, to whom is it accountable? It's not accountable to anybody. Decisions are taken and we don't know why, we don't know how to question it. And the very fact you've asked this question just now, and Shailesh answers it the way he did, proves it. If any, maybe, maybe some people in this room do think they know the answer to the question, but we need to look at it. And, this, and, and such a review also has to look at the accountability of the speaker, a look at the tenure of the speaker and looking at the way in which uh, his role and duties are carried out. Thank you. If the speaker can ensure that fundamental legislation impacting the future of this country, if he can ensure that that gets through in one day, he sure as hell can make sure that legislation, uh, that, that rules concerning the staff of the Palace of Westminster can be done within three months. It's a matter of leadership. And members wanting it to happen. Well, Dave, this is one of the primary reasons I'm running for Speaker of the House of Commons. When, before the Cox report came out, when some of the latest allegations, a number of staff came to see me to tell me what they put up with. I was horrified, and horrified to learn that sometimes things had happened when things had happened to members at the same time, and there was no way of gathering that information. Staff shuffled off sideways rather than have a confrontation with a member. It's unacceptable to me that any member of the House staff, or indeed any MP staff, goes to work in fear. Um, the stories that staff have told me, um, not able to take a lunch break, not monitored on how long it takes to deliver something to another member's office because they're not supposed to fraternise with staff, told to work late at night at 9 o'clock to turn something round for 8 o'clock the next morning. Lot, I mean, so many more. There are horror stories. It is just not acceptable. But my worry is, how, how have we got to this point where we've had Cox, we've had Gemma White, and so little has happened? We have to have a step change. I think it needs to be driven by the chair. I remember when Eleanor was chairing a session when we were talking about historic cases, and she very deftly managed to get it through, because I was there waiting to speak, and we were clear time was running out, and everyone was saying, don't speak, don't speak to all of us, and she got it through. I have instructions <laughs> not to get it through. <laughs> 
But it, we waited for a moment. But, but it shouldn't, much as it was great that Eleanor did that, it shouldn't have been down to a deputy speaker having to make a decision like that in the moment. It should have been bread and butter that whoever you are, however high up you get, whatever you're, you've done, you, you are held accountable for that. But for most, let's be clear, for most MPs, do a good job. Those who don't, and I believe staff have a list of good employers and bad employers, um, that's how they, when they apply for MPs' jobs, that's the word that goes out. But those that aren't so good, some of them just need help to be better. And actually, a lot of people who've told me about their experiences do not want to take it any further. They don't want to live through what they went through five years ago, two years ago, whenever it was, or even longer ago. They just want to have put that in a box and have it dealt with. But they get very upset at seeing people progress and often pontificate when they themselves have had problems with those members. So members must set the tone. The speaker has a really vital role in that. But I have to say, you know, we need to make, we need to make this centre of this so that any of us who get elected cannot ignore this. And with respect, Dave, I think you signed a letter to the Times of London. I think Hannah, Hannah was involved in that too. That's great that 60 great and good people did that. Mm -hmm. But that was a long while ago now. We noticed it. I think probably because you told us about it. Actually, I do read the Times. <laughs> yes. But out, I mean, do, do staff in the House know? Do, do, do the members who are going to be voting for us know and care enough about this? And the danger is, because of the B word, everyone's focusing on the chamber, which is absolutely right. We've talked a lot about that today, quite rightly. But the Speaker of the House is going to be there, not just for the next five weeks or five months, but up to five years or more. And if we can't deal with this, the culture change in three to five years, we could take a long while to get through. We got to start straight away. I think the six-month deadline's fine. If it was six months and a few days or a few weeks, I wouldn't beat us up about it. We need to have a clear plan. My worry is about a deadline is you do it fast. I and mean, let's face it, we've done many of these things. Do it in a rush. Lots of loopholes. Lots of It's badly done. We've got the structures in place. It's all there theoretically. But frankly, if you're working uh, as a clerk to a chair that shouts at you, and you want to raise a complaint to an independent panel, you're still in the system. What do you do? It moves sideways while it's dealt with? So you've actually lost out anyway. You need to have a system that makes sure that there's a proper culture so we actually, hopefully, don't have to rely too much on that independent process in the first place. So that would be my real, the real victory, is that it's rarely used because it never gets to that point. Well, the House has agreed that there should be an independent complaint system, but it hasn't actually been implemented. And as a result, although the House has agreed this, we still have a situation where because complainants don't have confidence in the system, then those in the senior levels of the hierarchy have impunity. And that is not regarded as satisfactory anywhere else outside the House of Commons. But it's testament to the fact that reform is difficult in the House of Commons because although the House has agreed, this reform hasn't happened. So that's why I think you need somebody with determine, determination and experience of reform to actually make this happen. And as far as the timescale is concerned, there was a letter by a wide-ranging number, which Meg has referred to, of people across the House saying, will you commit, as Speaker, to implementing this within, within your first six months of your Speakership? And I certainly signed up to that. Uh, yes, I signed up to that as well, um, and congratulations on, on, on making that happen. I only have one slight proviso, which is there might be a general election, which might throw lots of um, timetables a bit off guard. And, the, uh, and we do just need to bear in mind that the Speaker is only the chair of the Commission and doesn't have a vote unless there's equality of votes in the Commission. 
Um, and, I, and as I understand it, I, I don't think the Speaker has been unwilling to move this forward at all. It's, the issue has not been the Speaker. The issue has been at, with other members of the, of the Commission who have not wanted to move it forward. So that, that's my anxiety. That change, I, I won't be any better than Burko in regard to this, I think. I, I, I wouldn't question Burko on this issue whatsoever. Um, so it, but, it, but, but where maybe I have a better skill than John is as chairman of the Finance Committee. I have managed to get everybody to cooperate across parties. I, I think I'm quite good at managing to bring people together around a common plan, um, and that's the skill I think you're going to need in the Commission. Now, I, I, I do also like the idea of putting members of staff on the Commission, apart from obviously the clerk and so on who are on it already, <coughs> um, but you just have to bear in mind that it's a statutory body. It's set down in statute. So if you're going to do that, you've got to persuade a government that they're going to bring forward a bill to be able to do that. I'd actually quite like to elect the whole of the Commission because I think it is very odd the way it is, it is pre presently constituted. Just one final thing. I don't think we pay enough in, in the, the Palace of Westminster for, at any of the levels, actually, for, to get the staff that we really want. Quite often in the building um, department or the, the major projects department, we end up having to contract out work to others because we, we're sticking to government and pay <coughs> guidelines and it, and it simply means that we can't get the staff that we need. So I think there needs to be a major revision of how we look at um, um, pay and remuneration within the palace. And the, the final point on this is John has for lots of reasons, I've said this to his face, I've never said anything behind his back or in a public meeting that I've not said directly to him. He spent a lot of time on the issues in the chamber. I think the next speaker will have to spend as much time on the issues of running the building um, and on things like the commission, where often the commission meeting didn't even happen because he was still sitting in the chair, well, in, in the Commons. And, 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 and the, the commission simply hasn't transacted enough business. I think it should meet every fortnight. Um, and it will, it, if I'm speaker, it will be a key part of how I see doing the job. Make was just something. I just wanted to add is that I think staff should be on the commission. Also, member staff should be on SCIPSA, the Speaker's Committee for IPSA. It's well, unbelievable to me that they're not. We should be co-professionals. Also a statutory body, so also needs the government to sign up to it. And I'd also then yeah. do the reforms of yeah, IPSA that, um, that Henry wants to do. Yes, I'd certainly put uh, members of staff on the commission, if at all possible. Two on the commission and two maybe on, on SCIPSA. I think as, as far as uh, the current speaker is concerned, I think that... He has been compromised by the, the Dame Laura Cox report, and I think that, that w w when you're compromised in that way, I wonder whether his, his, he, he's absolutely able to drive this, this crucial reform forward. So I think it does need implementation, and I'd like to do it by Christmas. I think that uh, the, the, speaker, the new speaker's coming in uh, beginning of November, so we, we should get this done really, really quickly. And I, just one final point on the, the running of the building. I don't think the building is particularly well run. I think that the whole, if you look at the organogram, it is very confusing uh, as to who's in charge of what, and I have a great deal of difficulty trying to work out who is in charge of what. And I would, I know it's, um, maybe I, I'm regarded as, regarded as the dinosaur in this competition, but uh, I would certainly give the Sergeant Arms, uh, allow him to accrete more power and really be the champion of all the staff across the entire palace. Thank you, and thank you to all of you for giving such brief and excellent <laughs> answers, which enabled us to get through the few questions that we were able to get through. Um, thank thank you, you very much to everyone for joining us today. Thank you.